Welcome to Brain Health Matters, a show dedicated to helping you improve your health, master your mind, and boost your brain. I'm your host, Kate Kunkel, and in this week's show, we'll hear from Dr. Larry Rosen some important tips on how to live with technology in a way that doesn't mess with our brains. Stay tuned. Brain Health Matters is brought to you by Don't Let the Memories Fade. Learn many enjoyable ways to enhance body, mind, and spirit with simple lifestyle changes that will help you improve your memory and your mind. You can create a healthier, more vibrant future with Don't Let the Memories Fade. Available in ebook and paperback on Amazon everywhere. Welcome to Brain Health Matters. I'm Kate Conkle, and today we're talking to Dr. Larry Rosen. He's past chair and professor of psychology at California State University, Dominguez Hills. He's a research psychologist with specialties in generational differences, parenting, child and adolescent development, and educational psychology. He's recognized as an international expert in the psychology of technology, and that is why I have invited Dr. Larry Rosen with me today. Welcome, Larry. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you here. I saw um, your book on BookBub of all places, and I was so excited to learn about you because The book is called The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. And I said, I got to talk to this guy. We have to discuss this for brain health. So people are concerned, especially when it comes to kids. I have uh, three grandchildren and the youngest is two. And she can operate an iPad better than I can, you know, bottom line. And I'm not altogether comfortable with that. How about what do you think about really young children getting involved in this technology so early? Do you think it has any impact on their psychology and their neurology? Well, I can tell you that there's lots of research going on about that. Um, One study that I really like um, is called the ABCD study, and it's done across, I think, 12 universities around the world um, with like 50,000 people. And they started with 10-year-olds. And every year, the 10-year-olds come in and they get some paper and pencil tests. And every two years, they get their brain scan. And so they started with them the first year and the second year, and then they started brain scanning. And what they found was is that those kids who had more use technology more, and they assessed that just with paper and pencil, which is fine, had a thinner cortex. Now the cortex is supposed to thin as you age and as you get into your teenage years, the cortex is supposed to thin, but it was like a premature thinning. Nobody's quite sure what to make of that. And I know given this huge project, they're still working on it. And I've seen a couple of grants that they've been working on, but it is interesting to see that there's something as subtle as, as the cortex thinning that could be happening for those who overuse technology. I, you know, I've, I've read a few things about how it, it impedes development of certain senses or neurons or something for young, like, like two-year-olds. Have you ever seen any evidence or has your writing partner mentioned anything about that concern? You know, there's very little research on young kids. What you do see is research on kids who are, say, 9, 10, 11, 12, who are um, heavily invested in playing on iPads, playing games, um, Fortnite right now being the kind of requisite game that everybody wants to play. And um, I, I am, first of all, I'm a strong behaviorist. I believe in behaviorism as changing behavior. Uh, I have worked with parents over the years. I've actually recorded a series of, of uh, talks for elementary school parents of how to deal with their kids and how to build up 
um, behavior charts and things like that. Um, what I always recommend is that it's up, really up to you as to how much you, you think you're willing to let your child be online. However, there's an asterisk there which says not too much. And so I'm a firm believer that yes, a two, if you find something that's, that's reasonable for them to do, like a video to watch or something like that, that sounds fine because it's basically watching television for them. But if they're playing games, um, it's not okay. Right. Um, I particularly talk a lot to parents of sort of, the, again, that 10 to 13 range. And one of the things, of course, is how much time should they have? And my, my answer always is they don't own the technology. You hold on to the technology. It's yours, your phone, your iPad, whatever it is. And then you set the rules. And now parents have a lot of trouble setting rules, we know. But you set the rules. And I recommend that you start with maybe play a half hour. And when the alarm for a half hour goes off, you close it down. And if you close it down quickly, you get some points. And when the points add up to a certain amount, you get to add time on. So my, uh, I would say to a typical parent, let them play for a half hour, then make them go out for twice to three times that amount of time and play, you know, outside a game, board game, whatever, and then allow them to get back on and just be sure that you're monitoring all of it and that you're sitting right there. You're not letting them run free on the internet because it's very easy to just click on something and find it. As they get older, um, it's really important to set very strong limits. And I know in this day and age, parents, for some reason, just don't do a very good job of setting limits. I think part of it is, is that it's a busy world right now. And particularly with the pandemic going on, um, you know, parents are at home, working at home. They, they're happy that their kids are playing on the iPad because they're quiet and they're out of the way and they're not causing troubles. But then those parents let the kids play for six, eight hours, you know, and it's just not good for them. And one of the things that I've discovered interestingly lately, it's always been about gaming. Um, you know, and there's Minecraft first, which was a big hit. And then there's, there's uh, Roblox and then there's Fortnite. And, and there are all these games that the kids can play. Um, but what's, a fasc what's fascinating is they both play the game and they watch other people playing the game. So it's very much of a communal kind of thing. It's not like just the old kind of games where you play the game on the screen by yourself. Usually when they're playing... Uh, Roblox or Fortnite or whatever, they're playing with friends. They're playing online. And, and by friends, I mean friends. Maybe they know the friends, maybe they don't know the friends. And I've actually stopped one of the kids from playing because they had some like a look, sounded like a teenager saying nasty stuff to them. And, and I basically said, nope, you got to get out of there. Got to get out of that room. Got to stop with that person. You can't allow them. Yeah, you know, my, my granddaughter's six. And when um, she'll call, it's so strange. And this is like, I think it's kind of typical, the inability to stay focused on anything except those brains or those games, because they will, she will call me on Messenger to have a chat. But at the same time, she's gaming with her friend. Like, I, I don't understand how that I don't know. I, I couldn't do it. Number one. But number two, it, it makes them seem so distracted. And she it's really hard to hold a conversation with her, even when she's not in that situation. It's like she's bouncing all over. Do you think that is something that is a side effect of playing these things? We as as human beings have always tried to multitask. And when actually, if you if people read the first chapter of our book, Adam Adam Ghazali, my co-author, who's brilliant and will win a Nobel Prize someday, 
has, dis, has given a really good example back in caveman days about cavemen could multitask, but it was very simple kinds of things like smelling the air to see if there's a predator around, looking at the bushes to see if they're rustling because they don't want to be where a predator is because then they get eaten and life's over. We try to multitask. We always do. And part of that is our lives are really crazy. And we figure if we can multitask, we get more done in the same amount of time. Problem is we can't multitask. We're just not very good at it. And there, there are a few people around who can multitask really well and we call them super taskers. But the, for the rest of us, um, it's just difficult. And I always have people, um, particularly in the pandemic, turn on one of the shows that has scrolls on the bottom and somebody talking in the middle and like Anderson Cooper's on CNN and Anderson Cooper's talking, but there's scrolls at the bottom. And I have them look at the scrolls and read it to themselves, but try to understand what Anderson Cooper's saying and then do the opposite and they can't do it. And the reason is, is because you can multitask. You can walk and chew gum, for example, but only if one of the tasks is automatic or close to automatic, which is why, by the way, we can drive and talk to somebody in the car. We can drive and listen to music um, because driving is pretty automatic for most of us who have driven a long time. But multitasking is in general kind of a myth. I, I've started to realize I'm a terrible multitasker. I can, can't shut out all of the signals and then they just get all jumbled up in my brain and I lose track of what's going on. Or I just stop paying attention. It's like my brain shuts down and says no more. You know, I've said that and, and I, I talk about that actually in my book, Don't Let the Memories Fade. I say multitasking is a myth. We really can't. We can sequentially jump from task to task. But that's not always helpful either, because when you jump from task to task, you lose some time and you have to go back and think again what it is that you were trying to accomplish. What do you think about that idea? We are not multitaskers. We are task switchers. That means that we we're, have learned how to switch from one task to another and then back to that task. In the brain, what it kind of looks like, if you take this little analogy here, brain has a certain amount of blood in it. And blood carries glucose and oxygen, which are both needed for the neurons in your brain to fire collectively. So imagine that you're thinking about uh, what you're going to make for dinner, for example. And then all of a sudden you get distracted. And now your, your kid wants to know what they can do, what TV show they can watch or whatever. What happens is you can visualize this. The blood flow, when you start talking about the first task, the blood flows to that task. The, the neurons take out the oxygen and the glucose. They, they expel whatever they need to do. But then as you multitask, the brain sends the blood to the other task and the blood in this task then starts to go away. So then if you try to switch back to the first task, what you find is you almost have to start it again because more time in the second task means the first task has more time to, to basically disintegrate and get all those important neurotransmitters away. And so technically you're, you're task switching. And if you can switch from one task to another, if they're, one of them is easy or automatic, or if they're both basically pretty simple tasks. You call it interference. So when you're checking on an email or a social media or a text while you're doing something else, that's going to have a real impact then on the ability to get back to that something else. And, and your brain is always active, obviously, and always doing tasks. But as human beings, we try to cram too much into too little time. And part of it is our busy life. I mean, we, we're obviously much busier than cavemen, for example. 
And we're much busier than, than the preceding generations that have come before us because they basically had one focus and that was to, to provide for their families, period. They didn't multitask. Uh, they, they didn't need to. They just single tasked. But, but in our crazy world, given all the technology we have, it makes us multitask. The, that technology was supposed to make life easier and make things more simple, you know, that we would have more time to do things that were important. But it turns out to be exactly the opposite to my way of thinking. Well, and what's interesting is if I'm talking to you, I'm on my laptop screen and to the left of me is a second screen. Out of the corner of my eye, something flashes. What that does is draws my attention over there and says, oh, there's a Facebook message that's popping up. Oh, I better go check that. And then you have to go back to where you were. Really, basically what it is, is it takes you longer to do two tasks interleaving them, interleaving them than it does to do one task to the end and then the other task. People just don't like to do that. Oh, and first of all, it's a lot of it has to do with attention span. Our attention span has shrunk dramatically over the years. Um, the joke is that we have a shorter attention span than a goldfish. I think a goldfish has an eight minute attention span. I believe we're a little bit better than that. But all of the research shows that we, we in general have about a nine minute to 10 minute attention span out of 15 minutes. So if we do a task that's 15 minutes, we're going to only be able to attend for about nine or 10 minutes, maybe because we're multitasking or daydreaming or whatever it is. But we are just not able to focus for 15 minutes at a time. And we've done studies where we've given students a task and we say, what we want you to do is to really, really, really focus on something that is important for your school. Um, a paper that's due tomorrow, a test tomorrow, something really important for 15 minutes, that's all. 15 minutes, all, all you have to do. And then we stand there with a clipboard and every minute we see whether they're focused or not, if they focused on what they were supposed to be doing. What we find is that there's kind of like a pattern like this. They focus for a little bit and then they lose the focus and they focus for a little bit and lose the focus and focus for a little bit and lose the focus. And, and basically in all of our studies and, and other people who do the same thing, we can focus about nine or 10 minutes out of the 15. Rarely do you find somebody who can focus for 15 minutes straight. Um, and that's, that's terrible in my mind. How do you only focus for 15 minutes and can't even do that on something important? Um, and now you have to do, you know, you have to figure out what you learned, what you did. Yeah, exactly. I know that for me personally, I'm going to be 65 in a bit. And I've noticed that my attention span gets a little bit shorter as I age. For some reason, I have a little more trouble. Now I can still sit and write when I'm writing, I can write for two hours and not even know what's happening out there in the world. But when it's something like writing an email or something, I can easily get lost after 10 minutes. I just Maybe it's because I don't really want to do it. I don't know. But is that typical as we age that it would be a little harder to keep that attention span? You know, it's often very hard to disentangle the effects of aging from the dis to disentangle them from other effects, quite honestly. Uh, aging's going to bring on less ability to pull up words, a short attention span just because it does. It will wreak havoc with your ability. If you can multitask, it will wreak havoc with your ability to multitask. One of the studies that Adam did, which I think was, first of all, it was the one that attracted me to Adam, who's brilliant. What he did is he gave um, a bunch of people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s a, a game to play. And the game was you drive this, it was an original game, you drive this car up and down hills, and every once in a while a target shows up and 
you press a button if it's a green arrow or whatever it is, and you don't press a button if it's anything else, but you have to maintain the speed in your car. So you have to maintain the speed going up hills and downhill. So you have to increase obviously going uphill and decrease going downhill. So he measured all their, their multitasking abilities. And of course, the perfect curve, straight down. 20-year-olds did the best, then 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds. Then what he did is he gave 60s and 70-year-olds the, the game. And for two and a half weeks, or for, for a couple of weeks, um, he had them play it a couple hours a day. I think total of maybe 15 hours. Then he brought them back into the lab, gave them the game, and they were as good a multitaskers as 20-year-olds. Now, what's interesting is that was such a profound effect that he then went ahead and developed a better game and did it with ADHD kids and found that the ADHD kids playing this game increased their ability to focus and basically focus on the task. Um, that game is now actually the only game allowed by the Federal Dr Drug Administration as a treatment for ADHD. Wow, that's amazing. It is amazing. And it's just a simple game, but it's, the game is a multitasking game. The, the new one is really cool. You have to drive a boat through the fjords of Norway or Finland or wherever. And, and you have to keep the boat. And then these signs keep coming up. That you have to press a button if you see a you know, red arrow or whatever. Um, it's very simplistic. Um, he's now developing all sorts of, of games to fit other things like uh, traumatic brain injuries, things like that, anything that's cognitive based. I was going to say something for somebody with early cognitive decline or something, it would, it probably would be very helpful to stave off potential dementia. Yep. And he's, he's doing lots of studies with that. I mean, he does MRIs with it. Oh, the other thing that's interesting is he did an MRI of the, the older people's heads, both before and after, after just three weeks later, there's a change in the prefrontal cortex in their ability to attend, found more blood vessels, more activity up here. And part of this is your attention area. They were able to attend better because the prefrontal cortex actually changed over the time. That's incredible. Prefrontal cortex. I'm glad you brought that up because I watched one of your TED talks about the development of the prefrontal cortex. And I, I like to talk about this to my parents of, of young children where we're having trouble with, you know, attention and so forth. And I try to explain to them that it's because the brain, that part of the brain is not fully developed, perhaps in your words, which are so much better than mine, you could explain to people why it is that when we're younger, we don't make such good decisions and it's harder to focus. So when we're born, we're born with basically a bunch of neurons in our brain that are uh, like live wires. There's, you know, you pick up any wire in your house, it'll be coated by this plastic or rubber coating. That's to prevent you from getting a shock basically. But also it, it allows the information to get say from the plug in the wall to this light, which is on. If I, so when, as you age, these little fatty cells migrate to the neurons in your brain and start slowly covering them. And the fatty cells are just like the, the rubber that's covering your, your electrical line. Over time, the fatty cells are able to, to basically cover most of your neurons, but it doesn't, isn't completed until you're in your 20s, sometimes even in your 30s. What happens though is the prefrontal cortex, prefrontal cortex is absolutely critical in our thinking because it is the controller of our brain. Everything goes through the prefrontal cortex. It is how it, helps attention, helps multitasking. It helps us not, um, not make impulsive decisions. 
Uh, it, it involves working memory where we bring stuff into there that we need to work on a problem or something, think about it. That is the last area to be what's called myelinated. It's myelin, the little fatty cells. That's the last area. And again, that doesn't happen until your late 20s, early 30s. And so you got kids who are playing video games at 11, say, or 10, who have basically, I like to say, an uncooked brain. It's not ready for, for use. And so they make impulsive decisions because this controls the impulsivity. So also then the decisions that you make, because a lot of our, our ultimately our life path depends on the decisions we make and the decisions that we make until those myelin sheaths are come intact are not going to be as good because the messages aren't, aren't getting from side to side. Is that what I'm understanding? What I like to, what I at least use this analogy with parents. Imagine that you plug in a lamp and the lamp has no, just a live wires on running on the floor. And, but you plug it into the wall, what's going to happen? Well, if you touch those wires, you're going to get shocked. And in general, the lamp probably won't work anyway, because get the signal from the plug all the way to the lamp with the live wires on the floor, that signal may not get from A to Z to that point. Same thing happens. You're born with live wires in your, in your brain. That's why, by the way, babies flail around um, because they're the, the signal from in their brain is not getting through. It's little live wires that are sparking all over the place. So we, we understand that intuitively. We just don't understand how long it lasts. I mean, some people think, well, my baby's, you know, one or two and, and can walk around fine and talk a little bit and, you know, do things. So it must be okay. Well, no, that baby's going to make bad decisions. And, and, that, <laughs> and teenagers and, make bad decisions. I'm one of them. <laughs> teenage years, we all make bad decisions. It's part of the teenage years. But it's also the fact that multitasking and impulsivity are right behind the, the prefrontal cortex in the brain, right there where the crease is in the brain. And um, we... Uh, don't have an active prefrontal cortex yet, a good one. It's, and so in general, it doesn't do a very good job of, of stopping our impulsive behavior. It doesn't do a very good job of multitasking. Um, and we, we will suffer from that as kids. We'll suffer from that because they just make stupid decisions. And it's not like it's their problem. It's, it is their problem, obviously, but it's like they just don't have a fully developed brain, but we tend to treat them as though they do. Right. Because they look grown up, they must be grown up. Yeah. I also noticed that, like, say my dad, he's 85. His decision-making process, his ability to discern certain things is sliding. I notice that, you know, he has, he's much more impulsive. He, he jabbers out things that probably he wouldn't have said 20 years ago. So does that sheath then demyelinate? Okay, so what happens, it's interesting you bring that up. What happens is, is that you keep getting more myelin in your system. We can weigh the myelin. You keep getting more until your late 30s, early 40s. Usually, most people will say around 45. And then the myelin starts to dissipate. It starts to fragment and go away. And by the time you hit, say, 70 or 60s or 70s, your myelin is the same as it was when you were a teenager. There's a lot of myelinated um, diseases that happen. Multiple, multiple sclerosis is a demyelination disease. Um, and there's lots of them that happen mm -hmm. that are basically caused by the demyelinization um, in your brain. And, and if you think about it that way, by the time you're, say, 60 or 70, I'm 72, by the time you're 60 and 70, 
you're basically a teenager who's making bad decisions again. So I'd like to go back and see how then technology, it, do you think that the more we use, like, I, cause I don't know, I'm just asking this. I have no preconceived notion, but do you think that the use of technology would have an, an accelerating effect or would it have no effect on this process? We're constantly fighting that battle of where's the technology fitting? Where does it fit? If we let our kids play too much, is that destroying the brain? Well, we're going to find out. Um, the ABCD study is well underway and it's going to keep going for years. There are other studies around that show that, say, the more technology you use, the more likely you are to have mental health issues. It's a very controversial issue in, in my field because half the studies show yes, half the studies show no. And so it's more an effort. Uh, an effort of finding the right science there, just like we try to find the right science with medicine and everything, we try to find the right science with technology and, and mental health. And by and large, I'm on, I fall on the side of the more technology, the more mental health problems you have. Um, and we did a study that showed exactly that. Those who use more technology, for example, were more likely to have um, depression. Wow. And those who use more technology than less technology more likely to have anxiety disorders. But again, and then there's other studies that show the opposite, but there's studies that show that, that for girls, the more technology they use, the more likely they are to suicide. But those are small numbers, obviously, because not a very large percentage do that. But there's starting to be this sort of consensus slowly. Um, there's a huge group of people who study video games and do they affect your mental health? Are they good? Are they bad? Turns out they're both. I mean, they're good for manual dexterity. They're good for problem solving. They're just bad for your brain. My, one of my pet peeves is watching a family sit down for dinner at a restaurant and they're all on the day gum phones. So my concern is that they're not learning how to communicate in person with the people that are close to them. And that must impact mental health eventually. There is, there is some good research that shows that, that the more technology you use, the worse you are at connecting to other people. And the studies have been done in a lot of different ways, but in general, it's you have less chance, less ability to connect effectively. How do you interact with them? Well, I mean, I've, I've, listened, I've listened in the background to my grandsons playing Fortnite. And what it is really obvious is there's a lot of nastiness going on there. And, and then when they're done with the game, there's a lot of nastiness in the house. Um, so the game is kind of promoting that in some level. And it's hard to, it's hard to link them together um, as though one causes the other, but it's, it's pretty clear that, that that kind of communication is going to turn out to be difficult because um, I have had students in the past, I'm retired from teaching, but I've had students in the past. So I say something funny, they go, LOL. As <laughs> if laughing, LOL. Well, that's fine, but that's not a communication device. That is shortcut. That is a, a linguistic shortcut. And we did some studies on that. And the more people use linguistic shortcuts, the less likely they are to be able to communicate effectively. So when I want to wrap this up because I want to honor your time and our listeners. So what suggestions do you have for making people not let technology run their lives or, or take over their mental health? What can we do to live kindly with technology? 
Well, again, I'm a behaviorist. So from a behavioral point of view, if I'm talking to a parent, for example, I would tell them that they need to limit their technology and their kid's technology and set very clear limits. So depending on how old your kid is, uh, give them the time, amount of time they're able to play. When they get off immediately, they, they get reinforced. They get some points to be able to cash in for more time later on if they want. Um, for adults, we have to be good role models and we're not. I mean, we're at dinner and we're just as bad as those kids. They're playing on their iPads. We're on our phone checking it out. I mean, you see people, moms at the park with their kids. Moms are on the phones all the time. I mean, but, but everybody's on their phones. You can't drive for more than two seconds without seeing you know, a policeman on his phone or somebody on their phone. And so it gets to be more ubiquitous. And I think that's part of the problem is as adults, we've gotten sucked in. I mean, it's a great tool. Quite, don't, don't get me wrong. I love it. It's a great tool. It's everything. It's not a phone, rarely a phone, but it's everything. It's everything we could ever need in our life. And so it's not surprising that it's attracted to us. So what we have to do is be really good at setting limits, like uh, technology-free zones in houses. Um, dinner table, nobody brings their technology. Or if you really want to get better at it, there's this thing called tech breaks that you can do. So everybody can bring their technology to the dinner table. After, say, 15 minutes, everybody gets to check for a minute. And then they close it down and put it away or put it upside down. And then in 15 minutes, they get to check for a minute. That dissipates that anxiety and then get the kids back on track. Um, it's difficult to do for parents because they don't have the gumption to do it and they're doing it themselves too. It, it's it's they feel like it's fighting with them all the time. Yeah, I, I see that. It is fighting with them all the time. And if they're not, if they're like most parents now, they're not good role models now. The kids see the mom and dad on the phone. Why shouldn't they be allowed to be on their iPads or their phones or whatever and do things? And, and I get the interesting question. One of the questions that I get all the time is when do you allow your child to get on social media? Because that is the ultimate connecting device. And the answer is, it's tricky. Um, if your kids say, hey, everybody in my group, everybody in my class are on, have a phone and they're, and they're on social media um, and they're making plans and I don't know anything about them, well, then you have to consider letting them do it. But you, you own the phone, you own the iPad, and you own the right to tell them how long they can do it. And then it goes away. Um, kids are notorious for taking it to bed at night and, and ruining their sleep, which it does. And we know the more technology that allows you a night's sleep you get. Um, so the bottom line is you've got to be structured. As a parent, you have to be structured. You have to be willing to make real good boundaries around what you're willing to let them do and not do, and then let them earn the extra time. And But the technology companies use all sorts of tricks to get your eyeballs there and to keep them there. That's their job. And so the bottom line is we have to be better than those companies. And we have to monitor our kids. I mean, you don't just give a kid a phone and let them go crazy. You sit with them. You, you check what they're doing. You feel the ability to walk in any time and look at what they're doing. Who are their friends on social media? You, ch you keep checking them um, to make sure that they're not going to have problems. Yeah, and because it's, it's, problems and it's going to get worse before it gets better, sadly. But I can still envision that it will get better at some point. That is a beautiful place to end this conversation in a place of hope, because I think we could all use it. Dr. Larry Rosen, this has been amazing and very informative, and I'm sure you're going to get lots of people interested in more. Do you do consulting with families still, or what's the scoop? Technically retired, but that doesn't mean anything. I don't, 
I don't, I always tell people I'm retired from teaching only. Um, I'm not retired from research. I'm not retired from consulting and speaking because I love doing that. And I love talking to groups. I, I often get brought in to, to talk to the parents at a school. And I insist that no, no, I talk to the parents for an hour. I talk to the kids for an hour. I talk to the teachers for an hour because this is a whole system. And we live within a system. And if the system's out of balance, out of whack, well, there's going to be problems. And so we, are, we constantly try to get our system balanced. It's in equilibrium. It's called homeostasis. Try, try to keep it balanced as much as possible. And that's a team effort. That has to be parents, kids, teachers, everybody has to work toward that. Right now, I don't, because of the pandemic primarily, I think we're not very good at it. Um, we have some research uh, that we've done throughout the pandemic and we're just, we're just not very good at limiting our kids' time and monitoring it. But then again, you know, the pandemic came and everybody worked from home and it was, I mean, it was chaos anyway. And, and so it's gonna take a while to, to bounce back from all that as we get more of a, a normal world, whatever that means. I think being conscious of it too, paying attention to folks like yourself who have guidance, it will help people in this process because yeah, it's going to take a little bit to undo some of the damage that has been done. Dr. Larry Rosen, thank you so much for joining me. And I will have your contact information in the show notes so folks can reach out to you and uh, work with you, perhaps have you speak to a school or something. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Brain Health Matters. Be sure to subscribe with your favorite podcast service so that you can get all the latest episodes when they're released.